Samuel chapter 7, and let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this time in the study of your word. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing here at Calvary Chapel. And Lord, I thank you for those who are coming and hearing us on the radio. And uh, tonight, we just once again want to open up your word. And we want to give this time to you as we look at David's life and a man after God's own heart, that we want to see how it is that we can have a heart after God. And Lord, those things that, that, that David uh, was about um, as he was a worshiper, he was one that gave thanks to you and praised you and trusted you. Lord, we want to see that in his life, those things that blessed you so we can know that we, as we have those characteristics in our lives, that it blesses you. So Lord, we just want to make application tonight of what we read um, as we look at the life of David. But Lord, knowing you more, and being reminded of your goodness and faithfulness in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, when you look at the life of David, when we were in 1 Samuel chapters 16 and 17, those were two main events in David's early life that, that really were highlights of his life. Matter of fact, as we read chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we know that David was anointed king as the prophet came to the house of Jesse there in Bethlehem and told Uh, Jesse that one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel and of course it would be the youngest son of Jesse David who was anointed king it would be shortly after that that David would defeat the giant Goliath uh, there in the valley of Elah as David slewed him with a shepherd's sling David was just a teenager at that time and so after those two great events that happened in David's life, we know that God's hand was on David, that God anointed David, that the Lord was going to use David in a powerful way. He was with uh, David, the Lord was. And because of that, David's name was beginning to become known throughout Israel because David was one that obviously God is working through him. But it would be after that that David would go through a time of difficulties and trials as we study those chapters by the hand of Saul, as Saul was full of bitterness and jealousy and pursued David there in the wilderness. Well, as we're in 2 Samuel, and we see the reign of David. David is sitting now on the throne of Israel, and the whole nation has been united under his reign. And in chapters 6 and 7, I think that in the reign of David, these are two of the greatest days in David's uh, life and in his reign. One is, is when he brought the Ark of the Covenant up from Kirjath-Jerim to Jerusalem. Remember that David is establishing the city of David, or that is Jerusalem, as the center of worship now. David, when he first became king after the death of Saul, that he would go to Hebron and he was king for seven and a half years over the tribe of Judah. But now we see that he has brought the nation under his reign and he conquered that hillside that the Jebusites had a stronghold, Jerusalem. And David, he would move his headquarters, if you would, build his palace there at the city of David or at Jerusalem. And we're going to see that David's desire is, is to move the center of worship to Jerusalem as well. No longer in Hebron, but now in Jerusalem. And so in chapter 6, we saw that story as we concluded last week, that the Ark of the Covenant that had been in Kirjath-Jerim for 20 years was brought up to Jerusalem, to the city of David, where it's going to be there until the temple is built by David's son Solomon. And so he is doing that with worship. He's doing it with praise and thanksgiving and with sacrifice. And so we looked at those important principles 
of worship. And David was one that was a worshiper. That's one of the reasons why we can see in his life that he was a man after God's own heart. He worshiped the Lord. He humbled himself before the Lord, and he worshiped, and he danced, and he said that I will do this even more, be more undignified as it was his wife Micah that would despise him because he was a worshiper. And I want to remind you again that as you worship, there may be those that come along in your life that despise you or come down on you because you're one, that you give praise and glory to the Lord. So we saw that with David. And now in chapter 7, we're going to see another great day in David's life. So chapters 5 through 10, actually, we see the height of David's reign, his power, his, his, the blessing that God has given to him as he is getting rest from all his enemy. He, he is defeating his enemies around him, and uh, God is making his name great among the nations. And it's a real uh, time of blessing and prosperity for David. And then we're going to see that he's going to go through another period of difficulties and trials and upheaval. But this time, it's a result of his sin. Because in chapter 11, what we will see is David is going to sin with Bathsheba, that familiar story that we have recorded in 2 Samuel. He's going to fall into sin, and the repercussions uh, of that are going to be great, and um, he's going to go through a time of difficulties and trials and sorrows. You see, when we were in 1 Samuel, when David was going through trials at the hands of the circumstances that he was in, Saul was bitter towards him and pursuing him. And sometimes we go through trials and difficulties in that kind of way. There's maybe somebody that's persecuting you or coming down on you. Or maybe you're just going through trials because of the circumstances of life. And in that, we saw in 1 Samuel that David learned to trust the Lord. And it was in that time that David wrote those beautiful psalms as he cried out to the Lord, Lord, that you're my strong tower. Lord, you are my refuge. Lord, you are the one that's going to save me. And David poured his heart out to to the Lord, and he learned to trust in the Lord and to rest in him, and, and he was one that called upon the name of the Lord, and so we see that that was a time of real growth and maturity for David in that time of difficulties and trials by the hand of the circumstances that he was facing, and you see, I want to remind you again at this time in our study that when you are going through trials or loss or difficulties or, or the circumstances in your life are very difficult, that we can also cry out to to the Lord. We can learn and grow in those times of difficulties, knowing that, Lord, that you're with me. You're my strong tower. You're my refuge as well. Lord, you're my defender. Lord, you're the one that's going to strengthen me in this time of weakness. And so we also see that in 2 Samuel, that as David went through trials, this time at the hand of his own sin, the consequences that he went through, that David is also going to learn about the faithfulness and the amazing grace of our Lord, and the forgiveness of our Lord. And you see, sometimes we go through trials and difficulties. And sometimes we face tremendous difficult consequences and repercussions because of sin that we committed or compromise, or we do foolish things, or whatever it might be. But even in those times, we know that God's grace and forgiveness is there. And he calls us to repentance, just as David was one that repented. He calls us to repent, but the Lord's love is there, and his hand is still stretched out. 
So we'll see those important lessons. But let's go into chapter 7 as we see. Now it came to pass that when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So a quiet time for David. God has given him rest from all his enemies at this moment and he's dwelling in the house of cedar he had made a covenant with the king of tyre which is up in what we call today lebanon up in north of israel and there's the lebanon cedar trees that are there and Hiram would send those locks actually down the coast of the mediterranean to caesarea that seacoast city and then they would bring it over to jerusalem and david build a house and with that came the carpenters and the uh, masons to build the house for david and he's looking out and he sees the ark of the covenant that is dwelling in a tent and he's thinking here i am in this palace and the lord is in this tent now as we continue reading we see that it happened that night that the word of the lord came to nathan saying go tell my servant david thus says the lord would you build a house for me to dwell in for i have not dwelt in a house since the time that i brought the children of israel up from egypt even to this day but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle and so wherever i have moved about with all the children of israel have i ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, um, have, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So we see here that we're introduced to Nathan. Nathan hears the heart of David. Yes, we need to build the Lord a house. I mean, there's the tabernacle, uh, the tent, and, and there's the Ark of the Covenant in a tent. I'm in this palace. I want to build the Lord. That was David's desire. I want to build him a permanent home i want to build him a temple and nathan hears that nathan who is now going to the, be the spiritual advisor to david he's going to be the prophet of the land and we know that nathan he says that you do all that is on your heart david hey it seems logical doesn't it i mean god is blessing you david he's he has made your name great among the nations you're wanting to do this to glorify the lord to to proclaim his name it's a good thing so go ahead and, and do that and as we ended last week of course we talked about that there are things that and opportunities that can come up in our lives that we think well obviously lord you would want me to do this but we need to make sure that we take everything to prayer and lord is it this thing that is on my heart or this thing i want to do for you even though it may sound good, even though it seems like it's going to advance the kingdom of God, do you want me to be a part of this? And Nathan spoke prematurely. And we know that as we compare this with First uh, Chronicles chapters 28 and 29, that the Lord came to Nathan and said, Nathan, you spoke too soon. And David is not going to build the temple. He is a man of war. His hands are bloodied. It's going to be his son, a son of peace, Solomon, who is going to build the temple. And so we see here that David would then after that in first chronicles chapter 29 as it ties into the story what he did was he got all the building materials ready to go he continued with his covenant and um his um you know friendship with tyre up there uh harem the the king of tyre and 
he would supply building materials and again the cedar trees would come and and the workers david got all in line he got the levites in line the gatekeepers the musicians all those ready to go so that when solomon would come on the scene and was ready to build the temple everything was all in place and i remind you of that again because even though david didn't build the temple he did what he could do and that's a principle that we talked about just a couple of Sundays ago as we saw in Mark chapter 14. You recall that it was Mary that would anoint the body of Jesus there in her house right before he went to the cross. And she did that as an act of worship and love and devotion to him. She did what she could do. She didn't have time to make a big feast for him, like this is your last meal, Lord, before you're crucified. She didn't have time to make a nice garment for him. But what she did do was worship and anoint his body for burial. And you see, I want to once again remind you and me that, you know what, focus on what you can do. So oftentimes we focus on what we can't do. And David didn't sit in his palace and pout and say, well, I can't build the Lord a house, forget that. He said, okay, I understand, Lord, that I am not going to build the temple, but I do understand this, that there are things that I can do in helping my son get ready. And I pray for us that as we understand we can't do everything or there are some things the Lord may not have us to do, but there are some things that the Lord would have us to do and that we would focus on those things. And so David here is told, you're not going to build the house. And so the Lord here, as we go back to our text in Second Samuel chapter 8, the Lord is saying, David, you know, since the time that I've moved around in the tent, in the tabernacle, and of course it was the Lord that told Moses, build the tabernacle, and there I'm going to meet with my people. Have I ever asked any of the leaders to build me a house of cedar? Now in that, couple things. One is that David knew that the Lord, you know, could not be contained by a tent. Um, it was at the dedication of the temple that we see in 1 Kings. When Solomon gave that prayer of dedication, he acknowledged, he said, Lord, we know that a building cannot contain you. Matter of fact, the heavens which you created cannot, you know, contain you. And Lord, you hold all of it in the palm of your hand. And so they were aware of the, you know, awesomeness of God. But you see, it was the place that God said, I will meet with my people. I'll dwell between the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant that was there in the Holy of Holies. And as you read this, sometimes you can think that the motive, the attitude of the Lord saying to David, you know, there in, in verse 7 at the end, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Have I ever said that to any of the leaders? Like the Lord is saying, David, this is kind of dumb that you want to build a house. It isn't that way at all. But I think the, the motive and, and the attitude of the Lord here was that he was blessed that David wanted to do this. David, I didn't have any of the other leaders want to build a house or a temple. That he was blessed that David indeed had a heart to do this. And so we continue in verse 8. Now therefore, thus says, shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all of your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And so God reminds David what he has done for David. David, I took you as a shepherd boy to now shepherd this great nation, my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have made your name great. David was known, as I just mentioned to you, by the other nations and 
The reason was, as we saw, is because the Lord was with David, blessing David, giving him victory. And the Lord is saying, there's more that I want to do with you, David. And David is, is in a place, as he hears what the Lord is saying to him, that he's just overwhelming. He's going to begin to worship the Lord. And as he hears, yes, Lord, what you have done for me in my life. And see, what I want for us to always remember, and we should every day of our lives, what God has done for us. That he's taken us, those of us who are we're dead in our sin. All of us were before we came to Christ. And we were separated from God because of sin. And it is Jesus Christ who has brought us into that relationship with the Father because we have come to faith in Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness of sin. We have the hope of heaven. Remember what the Lord has done for you. And please never forget that. Because if you ever come to the point where you just forget, you know, and, and in the forefront of your heart it is not jesus christ and him crucified and i've been saved and i'm forgiven and i belong to the kingdom of god what happens is is you begin to get cynical and you murmur and you complain and here's david oh lord i praise you because i was a shepherd boy and now you've made me a shepherd of your people and every day we should be at awe and amazed how the lord has taken us who were lost who were blind and as we put our faith and trust in him, that now we're saved and we are his children and we belong to the kingdom of God. And he is with us wherever we go. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And he knows us, our name. You might be here tonight. You might think, nobody knows my name. Nobody cares about me. Nobody pays any attention to me. But know this, the Lord knows you. He knows your name. And he knows the number of hairs that are on your head. And the Lord loves you, and you are important to him, important enough to send his son to die for you. And there's so much that the Lord wants to do in your life. Do you believe that? He wants to do so much if you just surrender every area of your life and say, Lord, here I am. Here I am a servant to you. Lord, whatever you want to do, however you want to lead me, Lord, help me be the man or woman of God that you want me to be. Help me to be the, the husband, the wife, the father, the mother, the grandfather, the grandmother, just the, the person that you desire for me to be, to, to be where you want me to be, to serve you and the opportunities that you've given to me, I know that you want to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or hope for. And, and that's the way that a Christian should have um, that mindset and, and, and live in his life, that, Lord, you are so great and you're wonderful. So David is just being overwhelmed. This, this message continues in verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed 
from before you. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So here God promises David two things. David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And in verses 10 and 11, two of these promises. First of all, in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'm going to establish a permanent, secure Israel. And that would be fulfilled in in David and Solomon's reign as they would have rest from their enemies. But ultimately, it's going to be fulfilled when the Son of God comes, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, and sits on the throne and establishes his kingdom in the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is when it's ultimately going to be fulfilled. The restoration of Israel taking place at that time, which leads us to the second promise and tied into the second promise because, David, I'm going to build a house for you, verse 11. And you might be thinking, well, I thought David already had a house, that it was made of cedar, that Hiram of Tyre had made that house. But what God is promising David is this, that I'm going to establish a dynasty for the house of David and his descendants would be sitting on the throne for the next four centuries until the Babylonian captivity. But the long-term fulfillment is speaking of Jesus Christ who's going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to rule and reign when he establishes his kingdom. So David, through your descendants, is going to come the Messiah. And the people knew that from this chapter that David, that through your seed is going to come the Messiah and he's going to sit on the throne, your throne. And it's going to be a throne that's going to be established forever. And so that's why in Mark's gospel, as we've been going through Mark's gospel, that the people are crying out to Jesus, Son of David, Son of David. That was a messianic title. They knew that the scripture spoke of Jesus Christ coming from the line of David. So these two things are going to happen. David, that from your seed is going to come Messiah. And He's going to build you a house. Now, a couple interesting things. Solomon would build a temple, of course. But the seed of David, the throne of David, David, your throne that the Lord is going to sit on, this Messiah is going to be established forever. His throne and his house is going to be established. You know, the Lord has been building a magnificent house, hasn't he, for the last 2,000 years. And we know that 1 Corinthians 5, verse 21 tells us that that, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 tells us that we are the temple of God. We also know that in Peter's epistle that it talks about how we are living stones being fitted together for this holy habitation. We're a holy habitation. The temple that the Lord has been putting together for the last 2,000 years, the church, Jesus being the foundation, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. That's what Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 2. Oh, you have a marvelous and, and awesome, you know, status with the Lord. You're living stones. You're part of this holy habitation. And then in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, Christ the Son over his own house, whose house we are, you and me, if we hold fast to confidence and rejoice in the hope from to the end. You see, those first century Hebrew Christians needed to hear that. Because the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, Paul the Apostle or the human instrument that was used of the Lord, the Holy Spirit was the ultimate author, as he's writing to those Hebrew Christians there in the first century, they were struggling. 
I mean, they come out of Judaism, they miss the temple worship and the festivals and all the sacrifices, and they were being persecuted, and they thought, you know what, maybe it'd be easier to just go back to Judaism, go back to the temple worship, go back to the sacrifices, and that was a real temptation. And so the writer of Hebrews is getting them to understand that, listen, Jesus is superior. He is your salvation. He's the author of eternal salvation. He's superior to any religious system. To, to any, you know, sacrifice. He became the ultimate sacrifice. All the sacrifices of the bulls and goats could not provide forgiveness of sin. It was an atonement, a covering, until Jesus Christ came and he was offered once and for all. You see that terminology in the book of Hebrews over and over again. He died once and for all for us. And now we have forgiveness of sin. He is superior. He is sufficient. He's the one that you look to. Get, keep your eyes on him, the author and finisher of our faith. But in Hebrews chapter 3, they needed to understand this, that the Lord has been building a house which you are a part of, which you are a part of, a temple. They would be looking at that temple, that magnificent temple, the second temple in Jerusalem, saying, oh, look at that temple. Most of the Christians were just meeting in simple homes. Know, sitting in those homes and they didn't have the temple worship they were being persecuted they they missed all the you know feast and everything else and the lord was saying there's something more superior to the temple in jerusalem and that is you a house which the lord has been building so we know that the lord has been building a magnificent temple that is the church and so as we come together as living stones being fitted together in a house that he uh, has put together, which we are as we come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you see, it is Jesus Christ that's going to come back. And here's the exciting thing, because it all ties into what's going to happen with us when the Lord comes back. We get to rule and reign with him. Yes, there's going to be the restoration of Israel. Yes, he's going to sit on the throne of David. This promise is going to come to pass, but the promise is given to you and to me who are part of God's temple, that is the temple of Christ, putting us living stones together, that we're going to rule and reign with him. That's a magnificent and wonderful promise. That's our future. And so it should cause us to just break out in praise, just as David is, verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while is or a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant, verse 21, for your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so David just gives this praise and thanks to the Lord. He's greatly humbled. A couple things here. First of all, number one in verse 20, you know your servant. You know your servant. David was overwhelmed that God would use him and do this for him. David, who was a simple shepherd boy, now shepherding the people of Israel and the Messiah is going to establish your throne, David. That is, the, David, the, the throne of David is going to be established forever. The Lord's going to come and he will establish that throne. He'll sit on the throne of David and David's just like, wow, 
This is amazing that, God, that you would do that. You know your servant, and he knows you, a servant of the Lord, and the wonderful future that we have. As I mentioned, we get to rule and reign with him when he comes to establish his kingdom. And David was just overwhelmed that God would use somebody like me. I know that I feel that way, that I get overwhelmed that, Lord, why would you want to use somebody like me? And I don't worry about the whys anymore. I just rejoice in it. And I know the truth of Scripture says that God chooses the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world to confound the, the strong and, and, and you know, to put down the, the wise. And he uses the things that are not to bring to not the things that are that no man will glory in his presence. And that's been a lifelong verse for me because I'm amazed that God would use somebody like me. And I hope it's an encouragement as he uses me to know that he wants to use you as well, that he knows you. And he desires for you to, to really come to the, that point in your life saying, Lord, that the priority of my life is to know you and just be a servant for you just to serve you in whatever you would have for me. Because that brings us to point number two. You are great, Lord. There is none like you. You are great, Lord. There is none like our God, the true and the living God. He is so good and he's so faithful. And as you surrender your heart and your life to him, you see he's going to do wonderful things in your life. As you say, Lord, I just want to serve you. I want to follow after you. I just want to know you. Be used of you. It's a wonderful life that you're going to experience in the hands of Jesus Christ as he directs you and guides you and uses you for your purpose. And you see, that's where you're going to have ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in your life. It isn't going to be found by being a servant of the world or being in bondage to other things of the world. But you be a bondservant of Jesus Christ as you surrender because he is good. He is awesome. He is the only true God. And he's going to do wonderful things in your life. The praise continues, verse 23, And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, you, Lord, have become their God. And so you've made us a great nation. We belong to you. You're our God and we're your people, Lord. And of course, we know that, that we as Christians, that we are a holy nation, as Peter writes. That we belong to the kingdom of God. We just had 4th of July and, and um, I would say that most of us, if not all of us in this room, we love our country and and it's wonderful to be, you know, um, just proud to be an American and patriotic and, and, and things like that. But we belong to something even greater, and that is the kingdom of God. And I hope that we realize that, that, Lord, that we're your people, the church, that, that we're your children, and we belong to something special, something so wonderful. And you're our God, and you know us, and, and uh, we're going to be established forever as well. And then in verse 25, Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. 
So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, and it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Lord, you're going to bring it to pass, what you have promised me. Why? Because verse 28, and I have this underlined, your words are true. Lord, your words are true. And as we read this book and the promises that are given to us, we know that it is true. The words of God given to us. Jesus said that I am truth. He didn't say that I give truth or just tell truth. I am truth. God's is truth and his word is truth so everything that is in this book from genesis to revelation we know is going to come to pass the promises that are for us he is faithful to bring his word to pass and that we know that that we can stand on the word of god and that's a wonderful thing isn't it there's so many voices out there in the world and people's opinions and what is truth changes all the time but what I love about the Word of God is we can look at this and we can say, Lord, this is true and this doesn't change and I can stand on this truth and your Word is true. And that brings me great security and comfort and brings me to a place of wisdom of walking with God because I know that what you have to say about every area of my life and how I am to, to go in that direction, it helps me with decisions that I make, the principles the commandments, the truths that are there, I know it's all true, and it is good. And Lord, the promises you have for me, you're going to bring to pass, no doubt about it. So David is just giving thanksgiving to God. In chapter 8, after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methpeg Ammon and from the hand of the Philistines. And so here David um, is beginning to pursue, and he is subduing the Philistines. You remember during the reign of Saul, that Saul, you know, neglected in defending Israel. So the Philistines were coming into that area, you know, of Israel, deep into their territory, and, and had subdued many of the cities of Israel. Now that David is the king, he's having victory, and he subdues the Philistines to Methag uh, Am, Amma, and we know from First Chronicles, Chapter 29, I believe, that it tells us that it is this city, Methpeg Amma, actually First Chronicles chapter 18, so you have to erase your notes, okay? That is the name for Gath. Gath, you recall, was one of the major cities of the Philistines. Think about this. If I can get it out and articulate it well enough. Here's David subduing the Philistines, going into their territory, he takes over that major city of Gath. Now you remember that it was before, that as we end it, 1 Samuel, that David went to the king of Gath, remember? He said, can I hang out here? I'm running from Saul. And so he gave him Ziglag, and his men were there for 18 months. David was there, and he was reporting to the king of Gath, and we see that he was living in deception, during that 18 months, he never wrote a psalm to the Lord. 
and he was thinking, you know, I can fool the king of Gath, and the king of Gath, you know, Gath thinks that I'm going to side with the Philistines. And it was not a good place for David to be. It was a place of compromise. Now David is trusting the Lord, and the Lord is working in his life. Now David conquers that city. And I just want to remind you at this time in our study that perhaps there have been times in your life where, oh, I've compromised in this area, I've failed in this area, but as you trust in the Lord and as you rest in Him, as you just surrender completely to Him, He will give you victory over those areas. That you walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh is what Galatians chapter 6 tells us. You surrender to Him and He'll give you victory. He'll help you subdue the gas in your life that perhaps before you compromise and where there is deception and where there is sin. Now, Lord, you're giving me victory over these areas, just as he did with David. So he's beginning to pursue the enemy even more. Verse 2, then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. And he measured them off with the line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line, those he kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. And so we see here that um, it was David going and defeating the Moabites and they became a servant. Now, when you read this, as David defeats them very soundly, it's interesting that there's some ties that David had with Moab, wasn't there? Again, 1 Samuel chapter 22, you remember that when David was being pursued by Saul, that David took his parents and his brothers and he put them off and made an agreement with the king of Moab. Hey, can my parents stay here? Because if they stay in Bethlehem, Saul's going to kill them. So the king of Moab said, okay, they can stay there. We also know who was David's great-grandmother. It was Ruth, Moabitess. So why is David being so harsh here? It's seemingly. He draws a line and he says, and it seems like you on this side, you're going to die. You on this side, you're going to be servants. Let's look at this and talk about it more carefully. There have been some that have suggested, there, there's some ancient Hebrew writings that tell us that when David became the king, that the king of Moab killed David's parents, that is Jesse and his family. We don't know if that happened, if that is really true or, or not. The Bible doesn't say. But I believe what David is doing here is according to what is given to them in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, what they are told, that when you go and you conquer a city, when you conquer an, uh, an area, that either they can become your servants, or if they want to battle, they choose to fight, then they're going to end up dying. And I think David, as he pursued the Moabites, he said, okay, you can either become our servants, or if you want to do battle. And they said, uh-uh. We're going to pay tribute to you, David. We're just going to become your servants. So that's really what's going on here. And so David also defeated Hedadazar, the son of Rahab, uh, king of Zobah, and he went to recover the territory at the river Euphrates. Verse 4, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Why did David do that? I mean, wouldn't these horses and chariots be beneficial to David, make him more stronger? And he hamstrung the horses. In other words, he, he cut their tendons to where they couldn't be used in battle anymore. Joshua did the same thing when they were 
conquering the land. He hamstrung the horses that were on the chariots. Why did Joshua do it? Why is David doing it? Because first of all, David was told not to multiply horses. He's going to limit the, the number of horses here. The king there in the law is told not to multiply horses. But also, David would write in the Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we're going to remember the name of the Lord our God. And you see, David is showing us a very important principle as Joshua did. I'm not going to trust in, in you know, the horses and the chariots. I'm going to trust in you, Lord, and we're going to trust in you. And that's a very important principle for our lives, for this church, and for our nation. Sometimes we can trust in the things that we have, the horses and the chariots that we have, rather than trusting in the name of the Lord. Our strength is not in numbers and in money and possessions. Our strength is in the Lord. Now, the things that he gives to us, we praise God, and every good gift and perfect gift comes from above. We're thankful for that. Of course we are, to be good stewards of it. But, Lord, our strength is remembering you and being submitted to you. And that is true for my life personally, for my family, for this church corporately, for a nation. We're going to remember the name of the Lord our God. We're not going to put all of our trust in those things. And what can happen to us very easily is we begin to trust in what we have, our own understanding, our own might, our prosperity, whatever it might be, rather than just trusting in the Lord and depending completely upon Him. We will remember the name of the Lord. Some may trust in their horses and their chariots, but I'm going to trust in the Lord. And may we all come to that point in our lives. We continue in verse 5. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadez, our king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezar, and he brought them to Jerusalem. And also from Betta and from Berthai, cities of Hadadezar, King David took a large amount of bronze. And so we see here that um, a king, Zobah, which was the Syrian kingdom, goes to recapture some of the territory over by the Euphrates River. And that, of course, is over by where Iraq is today. He runs into David, and he is defeated. So David begins to take the gold shields. He's beginning to take the bronze. He's going to dedicate these things to the Lord, as we read in verse 9. Then Tohai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the enemy of Hadadezar. Then Tohai sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezar and defeated him. For Hadadezar had been at war with Tohai, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. And King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria and Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines and Amalek, and from the spoils of Hadadezar, the son of Rahab and king of Zobah. And then David made himself a name when he returned from killing eight 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom, and throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So he is taking the metals, the gold and the silvers, the bronze, he's dedicating them to the Lord, and he's going to use these things in, in helping build the temple. So he's gathering these things, dedicating them to God. And then as we finish tonight in verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of uh, Ahilud, was a recorder. Zadok, the son of 
Ahitub and uh, Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests, and Sarah Arai was the scribe. And Benaniah, or Benahiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. Why are these guys recorded? Because it was important to God, and God had a place for them, and God has a place for you, and whatever that might be, in the giftings that he gives to you. Here's one over the armies. Here's one that's a recorder. Here's one that is in the priestly office. Here's one that is a scribe. Here's others that are chief ministers. What is it that the Lord has for you and has called you and gifted you in? All of us have something to give. We can pray for one another. We can encourage one another. We can do simple things. And God remembers that and he knows that because he knows you. He knows his servants as David prayed. And what I hope is that you would remember how good God is, how faithful he is, his word is true, and Lord, that you want to use me now. And then I get to rule and reign with you when you come back as well. And what a wonderful, wonderful thing for us as Christians to know that we belong to the kingdom of God. So let's, let's further the kingdom of God in edifying and encouraging and being a witness to others. The Lord has a place for you and for me to use us in the most powerful way and whatever that might be. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word and this encouragement, seeing David in his life. And, Lord, I just pray that right now as we just take some time to, to, to pray that, that, Lord, that, Father, as we come into this place, that we would understand that, Lord, you love us so much. We have such a wonderful promise. And, and Lord, uh, knowing that we belong to you and to the kingdom of God. And Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here that they say, I don't know if I belong to the kingdom of God. I, I don't know if I'm really saved. And that you too can become a child of God. You, you can come to faith and be a part of the kingdom of God. Have forgiveness of sin. Because the Son of David, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died for you. And he laid down his life for you. And he went to Calvary's cross because he loves you. And the scripture says our sin has separated us from God. Every one of us have sinned. But as we surrender our lives and come in faith, believing that Jesus, you're the Son of God who died for me, and Jesus, I believe that you rose again from the grave and you're alive and you're going to come back, establish your kingdom. I, I want to be a part of that. You just pray in your heart, Jesus. Jesus, I believe you died for me. You died for my sins and forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. I repent. I turn right now. I turn to you and surrender to you. I come in faith. Forgive me. Be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for bringing me from the place of darkness into the place of light, a place where I was lost and now being found, and a place of blindness that I now see. Thank you, Jesus, for that work that you've done. And Father, I pray for all of us as, as believers that we remember always, just as David was remembering, Lord, what you've done for us. And it would cause us to have great joy in our lives. And, and Lord, that we would truly truly find fulfillment and satisfaction in just knowing that we belong to the kingdom of God. And Lord, we serve you.
We don't want to serve the world. We don't want to be in bondage to the world and sin. But Lord, have victory just as David did because he was a man.